0: Welcome back. You're listening to the front page edition of All Things Considered. I'm Rochelle
1: Aline. And I'm Leanna Scacchetti. Florida Secretary of State Ken Detzner recently released his recommendations for election reform under the advisement of Governor Scott. In response to these recommendations, the League of Women Voters of Florida has sent letters to various state leaders asking them to use Detzner's work as a starting point for election reform rather than the end. The president of the League of Women Voters of Florida, Deirdre McNabb, says early voting is a key issue because of its popularity among Florida voters. Two
2: thousand. Uh, eleven was make it as inconvenient as they could and the result was clear we had lines snaking all across the state third world countries don't ask their citizens to do that and we're there were reports of anywhere from fifty to two hundred thousand people who were unable to vote because they couldn't wait in the line and that's unacceptable and uh... the the secretary made some good suggestions but they're by no means anywhere near the uh, level and extent that we need to see in order to really put this problem behind us and stop being on the John Stewart show for, you know, a third election in Florida.
1: McNabb feels young voters were hurt the most by current early voting practices in the last election and says state leaders need to keep this in mind when working on election reform.
2: Number one, when he identified new early voting locations, there were no spots on campuses. And some of the longest lines we have had have been uh, near campuses where students have had to travel away and wait sometimes online from four to six hours. And in some cases, standing online to cast their vote after the election has been called. This is outrageous. This should not be the case. It is critically important that our students in Florida have a smooth and convenient experience when they go in to vote. So having locations on campuses is is just an essential, uh, should be an essential part of the reform.
1: The protocol for updating one's voting address is another key issue that McNall says needs to be looked into.
2: They did not address the new requirements um, for provisional ballots. Again, this is hitting students very hard. What we've had for the last 40 years is people have been able to travel all across our state from county to county, and be able to cast a regular ballot, simply changing and updating their address at the poll. The legislature last year changed the rule so that people who went to a different county would have to cast a provisional ballot, something takes about 20 minutes to do, and is the last kind of experience. You want to have a new voter, a young voter experience. So we are saying this unnecessary uh, regulation and new requirement should be eliminated, And again, that was not included in the secretary's recommendation.
1: McNabb says the League of Women Voters of Florida will continue to work with state leaders to ensure the proper election reform is being enacted.
2: We always strive to work with our elected officials in as collaborative a fashion as we can. We are not about conflict. We are about study and collaboration and bringing groups and and ideas together, finding common ground. So one of our first steps, because we've been following elections for a long time and doing the research, was to meet with the Secretary of State and contribute our ideas and recommendations, which he very politely, respectfully uh, listened to. But uh, what he came out with at the end of the day, after listening to a number of groups, uh, was inadequate, in our opinion. Uh, And I don't, you know, I, I want to recognize the Secretary for taking time and being as welcoming as he was, but at the end of the day, we're looking at what comes out. And we felt that it, it was still missing essential ingredients that were simply necessary for us to really be proud of our election process in our state.
1: McNabb encourages all el- eligible voters to keep their voting information up to date. You can visit the League of Women Voters at Florida's website at thefloridavoter.org to receive updates on important political issues in Florida.
0: Florida is currently one of the few remaining states to have no laws that keep drivers from texting while behind the wheel. But Florida Senator Nancy Duterte is working to change that. On Wednesday, Duterte, a Republican from Venice began to push a bill which would ban texting while driving and make it a secondary offense, meaning additional fines added to tickets. The Gainesville Police Department's public information officer, Ben Tobias, says texting leads to careless driving.
3: Careless driving is just defined as driving without care. Things that could do that, you know, these people that I've, uh, you know, spoken about uh, pulling over in the past. Uh, it's where they they're driving in a hazardous manner, where they look like they're going off the road or they may be going into another lane. Uh, that's careless driving, and you know the basis behind that careless driving is frequently, you know, texting or, or doing something on a cell phone. So the two kind of go hand in hand
0: you have senior Kimberly Percuquo can relate. She says she got into an accident her freshman year because she was texting while driving.
4: So I was driving home from a Chapter House and I was talking to my uncle on I was texting like an idiot and there was a bus in front of me with a couple cars behind it. Didn't think anything, you know, I was texting, looked up, everybody was stopped, slammed on my brakes, rear end of the person in front of me. Was mortified, freaked out. Like, I couldn't believe I got in an accident in my first year, like, away from home. And then the lady, of course, wanted to press charges, and I got a $187 ticket.
0: For those who may be worried about being pulled over unnecessarily, Tobias says the degree of punish- punishment will be left up to the officer's judgment.
3: Well, for an example, a seatbelt infraction uh, for the longest time was a secondary offense. And, you know, you remember the click-it-or-ticket campaigns. It didn't matter if it was a primary or a second offense. It didn't matter if it was a, uh, uh, you remember seeing all the click-it-or-ticket campaigns. So it really didn't matter if it was a primary or a secondary offense. There are, generally, when somebody is breaking one traffic law, they're going to be breaking another one. It's just the, the basis of how it works. Um... You know, with, with seatbelts being a secondary offense, we still, you know, issue quite a few uh, citations for seatbelts. And now that we see that seatbelts are now a primary offense, maybe this uh, could be a stepping stone for, for a texting ordinance uh, where, you know, it'll move into a primary offense sometime soon.
0: Percuco says that the Duterte bill will have a small impact on those who text while driving, but she feels that people will still do it anyway.
4: I think it would make a slight impact but people are going to do what they want to do. People are going to text and drive. That's just the way it is. It's like it's like putting on your makeup in the car while you're driving. Like, if, you, if you're in a hurry and you're wasting your time, and you're like, oh my gosh, I have no mascara on. I look, I, oh, I need to, oh, I'm on my, I need, or whatever, or you have coffee, or you want to put sugar in it, whatever the case is, if you think you can do it in your car, you're going to do it. The Turt's bill must
1: clear two more committees before reaching the Senate floor. The second Friday in February is known among Florida high school students as the day they find out their admission decision to the University of Florida. Today, however, something unusual happened. Some students have already heard from the University of Florida and their admissions decision was sent to them by text or email or through UF's online database. Among those who heard today is high school senior Justin Littlejohn from Melbourne. For him, today couldn't have come any sooner
5: i mean mean? it was a huge weight off my shoulders i mean i was stressed out waiting for tomorrow Mm -hmm. so i thought it was pretty awesome i think if i didn't get in and like if i didn't get in tomorrow when they posted again i'd be real upset but as of now i think it's amazing that i got to find out
1: our reporters at Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM made calls to officials at UF's admissions office but had not received a reply by the time this story went to air. And the case, the admissions decisions that were released were fraudulent. Justin says he would be devastated.
5: Well, I applied to other schools. I applied like UNF, FAU, all the like easy shoe-in schools, mm-hmm. but UF's the only school I want to go to. So right. if that were to happen, I'd be calling up the school and be like, look, you messed up. I'd like to figure out some way we could do this had to come into the spring or summer. That's okay, but I'd be...
0: It has almost been a year since the killing of Trayvon Martin brought Florida's stand-your-ground law into the spotlight. State Representative Alan Williams of Tallahassee filed a bill back in January to repeal the controversial law.
6: And the primary reason that I wanted to file, the reason I filed the repeal was to look at the... uh, that use history as a teacher on these recent cases and some past cases to say: One, has this law has this law been effective? Has it been effective in making our neighborhoods and our communities safer? Have individuals who have been who felt threatened um, by criminal acts of violence have they felt as though this law has helped them or not? And then also, uh, have we created, uh, in some cases, a vigilante type? Atmosphere in some of our communities, and uh, and so right now that's where we are. I mean, it's it's, it's our responsibility as lawmakers to review our our, our laws and our statutes to see uh, if they uh, are meeting current day, um, you know, current day uh, application of the law. And so that's my that's been my my focus and. Um, we're looking forward to you know, repealing this and then starting over. I still think that we, there's a need for um, some law to give people the, the ability to protect themselves, but I think in its current form, the uh, repeal bill that we have uh, doesn't meet that.
0: Williams does not believe, though, that his bill would affect the upcoming Zimmerman trial.
6: Um, I, I've been in contact with the, uh, the attorneys for the family. Um, I've been in contact with, obviously, his with Trayvon's mother, Sabrina, um, and I, I, do, I do not believe that a repeal of the law would have any impact on um, on the case or on the uh, the hearing that will take place. I believe in, in sometime in April. Number one, we won't unless the governor unless we unless we repeal it and the governor signs it in the law, uh, we probably won't even have it up and out of the legislative process. By the time uh, the stand your ground hearing takes place, but it still wouldn't it still wouldn't have an impact on on the on the hearing itself.
0: If the stand your ground law were to be repealed, it would mean redefining Florida's stance on self defense.
6: As members of this body, uh, I think we're held accountable for the laws on our books. Uh, a lot of times, we have outdated laws. A lot of times we have laws that need to be tweaked and, and, and refined. Um, and so I, I think we have an option here to either repeal it and start over, or we have the option of looking at the law and amending it uh, in a way that meets the needs of the people of the state of Florida. Um, but, by no, but by no means am I saying that individuals shouldn't be able to protect themselves. And by no means am I saying that we don't have uh we shouldn't uh enjoy the, the 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 ability that the second amendment gives us uh to to bear arms uh and, and nor do i want to infringe on anyone's uh rights in that regard this has nothing to do with gun control this has more to do with um, keeping our communities and neighborhoods safe
0: and with the current national gun control debate, all aspects of self-defense are being examined.
6: You know, just today I met with Marion Hammer, who's the president in NRA, uh, and you know, wanting to sit down with all groups as it relates to the repeal of the standing ground, because uh, it's important. It's important that we, everyone, has opportunity to weigh in on on, um, on this law. And then, as it relates to the gun control conversation here in Florida, I think we're going to have a lot of different proposals by members that we can look at and discuss uh, and weigh in on. Uh, but obviously, I, you know, I think a lot of folks have an appetite for looking at the gun registration, um, looking at the um, obviously those who may uh, suffer from mental illness. Make sure we don't uh, they don't have the ability to. Uh, carry, you know, weapons or guns. And then also, um, you know, I think there's also an appetite, if you will, for looking at some of these high-power guns, especially those that have the the larger ammunition storage uh, capabilities and so with the, the higher capacity magazines, we, um, we need to look at that as well. And, and I, I, I think we will, but really, you know what, it's really it's a federal, more of a federal issue than anything else. And I think the, the proper debate and dialogue is occurring where it should, and that's in Washington, D.C., between uh, the White House and Congress.
0: If anything, Williams thinks the Florida legislature has become more open to discussing the topic.
6: I believe the atmosphere here in, in the legislature is one of, you know, let's have the conversation. Let's let's look at, you know, what our laws say. Obviously, this is our, this is our first time to be reconvened since Trey was killed almost a year ago. We obviously lost some other citizens within our community uh, throughout the state of Florida since then, and we know that others have used Stand Your Ground as a defense. So we have to sit down and really look at this. I mean, at the end of the day, let's take away you know, our, our our democratic stripes and our Republican stripes and, and and sit down and say, you know, what's right what's what's fair for the citizens of the state of Florida, whether they be uh one month old or a hundred years old. You know, what what's right for our citizens? And uh when you when you sit back and you look at it, I think you come to the conclusion that we need to repeal, stay your ground here in Florida, and that we need to go back and amend our current law as it, as it relates. And just start over. Start over with a whole new whole new bill, whole new law, that the governor and that the speaker and the Senate president can all be proud of that came out of their chambers and went to the governor for signature.
0: Williams is currently in preparation to take his bill to committee. The Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission is taking action to try to save over 20 different species. Florida's 89.1 TFM's Michael Higdon has more. A plan to save 23
7: different native animals is underway. The Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission is wanting to save the different species, but they want to hear opinions from the general public. FWC's stakeholder coordinator, Claire Blunden, says they want to get the information out to people.
8: We wanted to create one statewide system with one listing criteria, whether the species was threatened or not threatened.
7: Blunden says they are looking for an outside take on these animals.
8: We're really looking for public partners, anybody who's interested or feels they have uh, a stake in what's going to happen, to give us uh, some feedback on what the species' needs are, uh, what actions they can help accomplish, what types of management or research they could be involved with, uh, and what impacts they, these plans might have.
7: The new plans for all the native animals will be available for the public to view once all the comments are posted.
8: For the most part, we've geared these plans uh, toward being readable for, for most most of the general public. There's glossaries, which define some of the terms that we're using that might be more complex or harder for people to understand.
7: Blunden says they will look across the species action plans for common themes and strategies so they can address them collectively. She adds they are accepting new petitions and requests for other species to be included. For more information and to comment on the plans, you can visit the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation website. The public comment period will end March 13, 2013. For Florida's
0: 89one WUFTFM, i I'm Michael Higdon. Copper can be used for more than you think. The Harn Museum of Art at the University of Florida has opened an exhibit which features the innovative work of Dutch artist Rembrandt and his use of copper to create prints. This exhibit titled Printmaking in the Age of Rembrandt includes some of Rembrandt's most highly collectible works of art from the 16th and 17th centuries. These pieces of art have been transported from the Currier Museum of Art in Manchester, New Hampshire, and highlights more than 70 of Rembrandt's prints, as well as other pieces from more than 30 different artists. Dolce Roman, the curator of art at the Harn Museum, says that the techniques used to create these prints from copper plates are beyond impressive. Though some may think of asteroids as things of science fiction movies, soon we'll be very close to our planet. Florida's 89.1 WUFT-FM's Maggie
9: Shortsman reports on how an asteroid
0: could end up getting to Earth.
9: On NASA's Near-Earth Object Program website, you can find a list of every comet or asteroid of any size that will be passing close to our home planet in the coming months, days, or even years. And actually, there are a lot more near-Earth objects than people will likely realize. Stargazers and NASA scientists alike will be looking at the skies just after Valentine's Day at one of these objects. On February 15th, an asteroid named 2012 DA14 is expected to pass fairly close to Earth. Director of Santa Fe College Planetarium James Albury explains that while there are a lot of near-Earth objects, most do not get this close to us.
10: This is one of those uh, asteroids. It's called a near-Earth object. Um, they're part of the Apollo group of asteroids and they're quite there are a lot of them that are in our general area, but not many of them pass this close to the Earth.
9: The asteroid is expected to be flying at seventeen thousand two hundred miles lower than some satellites orbiting Earth. Albury explains just how close this is in relation to the moon's location in space.
10: The moon, for example, the moon is as far away as about 250,000 miles away. So it's much, much further. It'll be coming in much, much closer than the moon is. And the next time we have uh, predicted another object that will come this close uh, to the Earth is, uh, is the 2004 MN4, which is also known as Apophis. That's supposed to pass by in April of uh, the 2028 or 2029. So it's going to be a while, but it's going to come by as close as this one.
9: The asteroid is slightly less than 150 feet long, which Aubrey compares to the size of half a football field. He says the asteroid isn't big enough to be seen by the naked eye, but if you are in the right parts of the world, may be visible through binoculars.
10: This asteroid about the size of, it's about 100 feet in length, so maybe half a football field in It's kind of shaped like a potato. And unfortunately it's so small that you won't be able to see it with the naked eye its magnitude is going to be less than naked-eye magnitude, which will be around 7.4. But if you have binoculars and you know where to look, if you're in, say, for example, uh, in Indonesia or Australia or Eastern Europe or parts of Asia, you may be able to see it as it travels uh, past the Earth.
9: Though the asteroid will be flying close to Earth, it is highly unlikely to make impact. Albury says it would take a massive amount of energy to change the asteroid's course.
10: Even though it's going to come very, very close to the Earth, the object itself has a great deal of momentum, and in order to veer it off of that course would require a great deal of energy.
9: Aubrey imagines if the asteroid were to hit, the damage would be similar to the 1908 Tungusa event, but says most people would mistake it for a nuclear explosion.
10: Hmm, if it were to hit the Earth, it would be similar to the uh, to the collision that the Earth had with uh in June the 30th of 1908, the Tunguska event, that's, uh, that was uh, an event that happened where they believed that it was probably a piece of a cometary fragment that exploded uh, in the atmosphere above Tunguska, Siberia, and it flattened uh, much of the forest, burned up the trees. It would be equivalent. If it were to, something like that were to happen today, people would have probably mistaken it for a nuclear explosion or something like that, being that it was that powerful.
9: NASA uses what is known as the Torino scale to measure the hazard any one asteroid poses to Earth. This one rates at a white level, meaning it poses no threat and the chance of impact is zero. Though the asteroid will not hit the Earth, Asteroid 2012 DA14's proximity gives scientists an opportunity to research and improve the technology we use to study the skies. For Florida's
1: 89.1 WUFTFM, I'm Maggie Schwartzman in Gainesville. Researchers from the University of Florida's Natural History Department are releasing a study today unlike any other. As part of a team that includes researchers from Yale and the National Museum of Natural History, among others, they're now ready to unveil the Tree of Life. A group of scientists from the University of Florida are part of an international team that is creating the largest Tree of Life database to date. The study, which was published to the journal Science Today, includes research on genetic and physical characteristics of placental mammals, which evolved into many of the mammals on Earth today. Jonathan Block is an assistant curator of vertebrate paleontology at the Florida Museum of Natural History on UF's campus. He says that this project is unique and that it is so large and in the way it makes the information comprehensive.
5: We were able to reconstruct uh, a tree of life, so we were able to look at the relationships of those species to each other. And it's an important uh, analysis because it's the, it's the largest data set of its kind that's ever been constructed to look at the interrelationships of the different species of mammals.
1: Bloch says that for each animal examined, both alive and extinct, they examined thousands of morphological characteristics – he explains the extensive process that he and other researchers used to build this database.
5: We took these uh, species and we looked at the, at the different morphological characteristics, that is, the characteristics of their body. And we used this information to, to characterize them. And we, we scored, we basically used each piece of, piece of morphologic information as an independent piece of data that we scored in a giant matrix.
1: Block says that this information isn't exclusive for just UF or the research team. The goal is that future scientists will be able to recreate this sort of study with new incoming research.
5: The other really amazing thing about it is that, uh, to me anyway, is that the way we documented it was uh, was such that I think it's basically reproducible for future generations. So we we actually took pictures of each of the. Pieces of morphology that we looked at, so pictures of the way the teeth looked or what, the way the, the muscles looked or, or different aspects of the, of the structure of the ankle, you know, for example. And we actually, you know, labeled the pictures and showed how we coded, you know, various aspects of morphology, which is not something that had really been done very well before in the past.
1: Block says that he is confident in the study and its ability to advance future research in evolutionary morphology, including other species
5: anybody will be able to access our project and and not only look at what we did but also they'll be able to um, to extract it as various types of files uh, that they could then build from and add to themselves and run analyses themselves you know on their own and probably what we'll see is a, a lot of people doing that and there may be a fair number of publications coming out showing all the ways in which we were wrong which would be very which would be very good um, but that's that's the the beauty of this, I think, is that we're making the data so accessible through this website called Morphobank.
1: Throughout the years, Block says he and his team have seen much consistency with the data they found and current theories about morphological evolution. He adds, however, that they have also seen some surprising new data.
5: One of the things that it shows is that if you you look at the fossil record, the species that we coded uh, that were fossils in this analysis, what it shows is that the is that the orders of mammals on the planet today, um, so things like rodents and bats and primates and you know, these groups that we, that we recognize today, have their origins essentially just after the extinction of the dinosaurs 65 million years ago, and not a whole lot before that. So it really was sort of a major burst of evolution following the extinction of the dinosaurs.
1: The group of researchers started the Tree of Life project five years ago with funding from the National Science Foundation through the Emerging Frontiers program. Bloch says that many people involved in the project are really experts in their field, including himself.
5: My expertise has been on the evolution of primates and the relationship of primates to other mammals, looking at not only modern uh, primates, but also, the, most importantly in my mind, the fossil record of primates. And so uh, when this project was um, being conceived and, and when, the, when the folks who had the idea of, uh, of doing it uh, were thinking about who they wanted to involve, they contacted me because they, they knew that this was, this was right down my alley. It's exactly what I, what I worked on. They had read my publication on the subject.
1: After five years of study, the team feels that they have reached a stopping point to share their research with the world. He says, however that this doesn't mean the end to the research forever.
5: And where we are now is the completion of that project. Um, so this, this publication presents um, the results of that work. And, uh, and, and as, as always happens in science, when you've completed a project like this, um, then, then that really, it is just a stepping stone. So the best science, I think, is the one that passes on the results and says, okay, here's how we can move forward and, and do even better.
1: Block says that after doing 4,500 individual observations per animal, they've only scratched the surface of the extensive data. He says he is looking forward to seeing researchers and students adding to the tree of life for many years to come. A decline in a certain Florida crop could have a worldwide effect. Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Michael Hignan has more.
7: A drop in Florida citrus crops could raise citrus prices. Florida is the main producer of citrus in the nation and this drop could affect consumers. University of Florida retired professor of food and resource economics Thomas Spreen says there are several different reasons there could be a decline in fruit.
11: Well this year um, the crop forecast comes out in October and they forecasted 156 million boxes of fruit but you could see at the time that fruit drop was an issue. Now there's a certain normal level of fruit drop. I mean, the fr- all the fruit that's, that's, that's uh, set on the trees isn't all harvested. But this year the fruit drop seems to be much larger. And the reason given is they think it's related to this disease known as greening. One of the, one of the aspects of greening is that the trees tend to drop their, their fruit more quickly and now that greening has become more widespread in the state, that that may be a contributing factor. Citrus canker may be another reason. The citrus uh, canker eradication program had to be abandoned after the hurricanes of 2004 and 2005. And another attribute of canker is it promotes uh, fruit drop. Then we've also had a very warm winter. and. Um, and a relatively dry winter. Now even though irrigation helps with the dryness, it could be the trees simply um, are getting ready for the bloom for the next year. And I just saw a report that the bloom has begun. Um, And so that may be a third factor.
7: Spring adds consumers don't have to worry yet.
11: I don't think it's going to be a large effect. Um, The crop Uh, Forecast is down about 10% from the initial forecast. Uh, Of course, that's not evenly distributed across uh, growers. But believe it or not, growers actually benefit from a smaller crop, that the prices rise in response to the smaller crop. And so, from an economic standpoint, the growers probably will not be all that adversely affected.
7: He says prices are likely to stay the same, but the appearance of the fruit may change.
11: Well, I don't think they'll rise from where they have been, but I think we might have seen somewhat of a price decline had a larger crop been produced. And so I think at the consumer level, we'll actually see the prices probably stay about where they have been, but because of sort of the post-effects of the hurricane and greening, crops have not been particularly large the last several years.
7: Spring adds there are things being done to deter problems with the crops.
11: The growers have been uh, uh, investing money themselves and there's been uh, quite a research effort not only done by the University of Florida but also by USDA and also researchers even outside of Florida so there's a very aggressive research program trying to come up with various solutions for, uh, for, for greening which range from a disease resistant tree that might be a genetically modified tree to uh, approaches to kill the insect that spreads the disease uh, to maybe even some kind of an antibiotic uh, greenings caused by a bacteria even some kind of an antibiotic solution where the trees maybe could be treated and it would kill the bacteria but there's not a solution that's like on the horizon. Uh, so, so unfortunately for the growers and for the state in general, we're going to kind of be in this period for the next several years of, of the disease kind of gradually uh, uh, adversely affecting the industry.
7: Officials estimate the 2013 Florida citrus crop to drop at least 5%. For Florida's
0: 89.1 WUFTFM, I'm Michael Higdon. With a variety of artifacts, the Pathway to Freedom exhibit continues his journey from school to school in honor of Black History Month. Florida's 89one WUFTFM's Chelsea Ray had a chance to see the exhibit in its final day at Santa Fe College and has this report. The month of February is Black History Month.
12: And over at Santa Fe College, they are hosting an entire exhibit in honor of it. The exhibit is a collection of everything from documents, books, and posters to buttons and baseball cards. The Pathway to Freedom exhibit, sponsored by the Black Student Union and Student Life Services, has 65 tables and over 2,000 artifacts. The exhibit is a personal collection of Reverend Leroy Chandler. The idea to create the exhibit stemmed from Chandler's interest in researching his heritage. One day, he attempted to find an exhibit about his culture, and he couldn't.
13: Now, two things can happen there. I can either get upset and start yelling and screaming at someone, someone ought to, or I could get busy and do something about it. And I decided to get busy and do something about it, and what we have around here is uh, the result of that getting busy.
12: It is Chandler's hope that when people enter the exhibit, they inherit a sense of pride for their race or nationality. He hopes that they appreciate it and, like him, also become interested in learning more about their ethnicity and history. Chandler was able to witness his exhibit have a positive effect on a visitor.
13: One of the young ladies who came through the exhibit today uh, mimics something that uh, really I would want to hear. And it says, OK, we're being successful in what we're trying to do. She said, wow. There are things here that I never knew. I never knew there were so many things about our history that I did not know. And she said, I guess I really need to study my history. This exhibit made a change in that young lady's mindset. That is very precious.
12: Although the exhibit has traveled to schools all over North Central Florida, one visitor enjoyed it so much, she hopes it will make its way here to the University of Florida.
0: Yeah, I think it's um, very special to know that he's doing this just for the purpose of sharing and learning with the community. And um, it's something that I actually really like to see at UF, which is my alma mater, especially um, just because I feel like with all the diverse voices there, there's so much that the community there can learn from it. And as a future social studies teacher, I was able to take books and see different, um, people in history I never knew about, and I think when I go to teach, I'm going to be able to connect with my students more by showing them new perspectives in black history. Today was
12: the exhibit's last day at Santa Fe College. The celebration of African culture and history will continue throughout the month of February as the exhibit continues to travel from school to school. For Florida's 89.1 WUFT-FM, I'm Chelsea
0: Ray. Thanks for tuning in to the front page edition of All Things Considered. This has been a broadcast of Florida's 89.1 WUF.